0: Well, as of last week, uh, we've been uh, looking at the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, uh, written some 2,600 years ago by a prophet of the same name who was living in the southern kingdom of Judah. And Habakkuk is distressed, to put it mildly, by the evil that he sees amongst his own people. Many of them have become morally corrupt and spiritually apostate, even as we heard last week, violent. God's law seemed to have very little impact on their hearts and their lives. The rich were using their power and their money to get what they want. Uh, The rights of the poor were being trampled on. And Habakkuk's basic complaint is, God, why aren't you doing something about this? I know that you're good. I know that you're powerful. So so what gives? And God gives him an answer he wasn't expecting. I will bring about justice, God says. The people doing this wickedness aren't going to get away with it. But my justice will come through the Babylonians, who will come and conquer the wayward people of Judah. And Abacus' response is basically, Say what? They're worse than we are. Uh, How can you use them to judge us? And God replies, They won't get away with it either, for their fall is coming too. Today we're going to look at God's assessment of one evil people and what he did about that evil. But in doing so, we're also going to see something in them that we are all prone to in different ways so that we can recognize it in ourselves and avoid the trap that it creates. We find in Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. This is God's word. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it, For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave and, like death, is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive... All the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you, for you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain to set his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime." Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from his wine, the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from God's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence that you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol, since a man has carved it, or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. Or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. So what do we see in here? We see a portrait of pride. And in it we see four things. What pride is, what pride does, how it ensnares us, and how we can be free from it. Uh, First, we see here what pride is. You see, in describing Babylon as a nation, God uh, provides ample commentary here. Verse 5 tells us he is arrogant. It's the same word uh, that we see in Proverbs 21 verse 24 in parallel with words for proud, and and presumptuous. In other words, someone who presumes too much before others. They're self-important, asserting themselves over others because of it. Maybe for you fans of of Ted Lasso, you might be thinking of, of Rupert, always inserting himself where he doesn't belong, always making everything about himself, or maybe Jamie Chart, chanting on the football pitch, me, me, me. Or maybe one that more of you might recognize, the person in this next picture up here. Gaston, the true villain in Beauty and the Beast. You see, nobody loves Gaston more than Gaston. You see, he's always thinking about himself, always talking about himself, sometimes singing about himself, because he is all about his own glory. As attractive as Gaston is on the outside, the ugliness of his pride repels the same person whose affection he seeks, the, the beauty named Belle. He can't stand when someone that he wants to be thinking about him is instead thinking about somebody else, namely the beast. He can't stand it when that someone has something that he wants for himself, namely the affection of Belle. You see, he thinks he can do what he wants, get what he wants, take what he wants, and get away with. it. And if Gaston were a nation, his name would be Babylon. Thank you for that. In verse 4, it also says of Babylon, his desires are not upright. Or as other translations uh, put it, his soul or his spirit is not right within him. We read on in in verse 5 that wine betrays him. In other words, it's not just that his desires are twisted, but like a, a drunken man, so is his view of reality. Speaking of that same nation, verse 4 tells us see, he is, he is puffed up, which is, is quite the image for being proud. And reading that, I really couldn't help but think of the, the creature in this next picture, the puffer fish. You see, these are not great swimmers, not the fastest of fish, and not the biggest of fish, and they have quite the way with dealing with their insecurities. You see, when they feel threatened, they can puff up to appear three times their actual size by quickly drinking enormous amounts of water, creating the illusion that the fish is something that it's not. It's a defense mechanism designed to intimidate or dissuade other fish. The whole process of going from the the little fish on, on the left pictures and that one on the right takes only about 15 seconds, but recovery takes a lot longer as a scuba diving instructor, Liz Maynard, uh, described it. The pufferfish expels water from its stomach the way that it entered, but at a much slower rate. Studies have shown that it can take an average of 5.6 hours before the fish returns to a typical metabolic level. During this time, the fish is vulnerable because of its size and immobility. It just kind of floats along. The pufferfish is also typically exhausted from the exertion of puffing up. Some have the added defense mechanism of sharp spines that you can see in that picture. And their skin is covered with a neurotoxin so powerful that one fish has enough to kill 30 grown humans. Insecure and toxic. That's the puffer fish. And that's pride. Thanks for that picture. Maybe it's telling that uh, in the original Hebrew, the word translated puffer or puffed up is actually close to the Hebrew word uh, for a tumor, uh, a source of swelling caused not by an inner strength, but by a sickness. God's got a lot to say here in just these two verses, but together they help paint a picture of what pride is. Simply put, pride is a distorted view of reality that makes you presume too much distorts your desires, and shows itself in how you carry yourself before others. Part Gaston, part pufferfish, And we see it on full display in the ways of the Babylonians. You see, ways that betray a view of reality that assumes that their might is what makes right and puts no restraint on their ever-growing desire for conquest. You see, like a spreading tumor, Babylon brought suffering and death wherever they went. Verse 5 tells us, he is greedy as the grave, and like death, is never satisfied. You see, they don't just want to gather one or many nations, but it says all the nations, to take captive all the peoples. And so the people cry out in verse 6, how long must this go on? Like, when will it be enough for this proud nation? Well, never. You see, pride can never get enough because it can never have enough pride is insatiable and therefore at its root radically insecure that's pride and as we look at what that proud nation did we actually see a picture of what pride does notice what babylon does in verse 6 it says they pile up stolen goods making themselves wealthy at others expenses verse 8 they plunder nations and shed men's blood verse 10 They plotted others' ruin. Verse 15, they take advantage of others. Verse 17, even the land isn't safe from them, whether Lebanon with her her famous cedars uh, or the animals that they come across. As a nation, Babylon leaves wounded people and destruction in their wake. And yet that's what pride does. Pride hurts because it turns others into simply a means to our own ends. But the cost of pride isn't only borne by others. You see, pride also wears the proud down. It wears us down. It depletes us. That's because pride is exhausting. Verse 5 tells us, He is arrogant and never at rest. While verse 13 says, "Uh, The nations that carry on like Babylon exhaust themselves for nothing. In his commentary on Habakkuk, the French reformer John Calvin writes, He who fortifies himself and is also elated with self-confidence never finds a tranquil haven, for some new suspicion or fear ever disturbs his mind. You see, the insecurity behind pride leaves the proud in a state of never being able to rest, but rather constantly swimming against a current that says, you must keep at this or perish. To illustrate, in a, in a 1991 interview with a Vanity Fair magazine, the wildly successful singer Madonna, who, who recently finished a tour that sold out in 27 cities, writes this, says this, All of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended. And it probably never will. She goes on to say... They see me as an icon, and it makes me extremely exhausted. In an unusual parallel, like Babylon, Madonna says that she wanted to conquer the world. So how do you become one of the most successful and acclaimed musicians of all time and still feel that you have to prove that you're somebody? Exhausting yourself in the process. Pride. But it's not unique to her. It's a trap that nobody is immune to. So how does it ensnare us? Well, the answer is found in one word right there in verse 18. Trust. God is talking to Habakkuk about how Babylon and others like her make idols for themselves. In other words, things that they worship as a god and then place their trust in those things. And, And that's the trap. Placing your ultimate trust in something that you make yourself. Something that you do. Something that becomes your source of pride in other words an idol for madonna it was what she could create as an artist and a performer and yet no matter how many number one hits she had no matter how many sold out concert tours how many raving fans there was this inner drive to fight against the feeling of of not being somebody a drive she later confessed ruined numerous relationships Later in her career she, she'd say, You can start to feel like a gerbil on a wheel. It felt really I felt really drained. And maybe you could say the same for yourself. Maybe you feel the same, maybe drained. Maybe insecure, maybe exhausted. Maybe those around you have felt hurt or felt used. And maybe the source of those things is pride. Some of you know, in in college, I I briefly ran cross country. Like the puffer fish, I was not the fastest one out there. While the others in my class uh, were recruits on athletic scholarships, almost all of them a high school state champion or runner-up, I was a walk-on. I often joke that I was on a pizza scholarship because that's what the team would provide for lunch after a race. And in my insecurity, it wasn't just limited to athletics, but, but also finances. Uh, And I thought that I could address both insecurities at once by earning an athletic scholarship. That's what I was trusting in, uh, to deliver me uh, from my, my insecurities. I was going to make myself someone that you had to respect, and becoming a scholarship runner would be my salvation. And the way to do so, I figured, was not simply to improve my times, not beat enough runners from other teams, but to be a teammate who was already on scholarship. Okay, okay, mistake number one was making that my goal. Mistake number two was telling my teammates that that was my goal. Not a good move, not a good look. Years later, I I actually did catch up with one of those teammates, the, the only one that I actually ever beat. He said, we hated you. And I couldn't blame him because pride hurts others. Instead of treating this guy as, as my teammate, someone to, to partner with t- to get better, I treated him as an adversary, as a means to my own ends. His loss would be my gain. All of this in an attempt to address my own insecurities or long ago on the playground and in PE. classes. But like Madonna, my struggle with pride came, uh, my struggle with pride uh, did lead to a better performance. But it also left me, quite literally, exhausted. My relationships paid the price. And maybe, in your own way, you could say the same for yourselves. And yet there are many faces of of pride. You see, while my struggle with pride came because I was not the fastest, there was one whose struggle with pride came because of the exact opposite reason. Kids, I think you might recognize the one in this, this next picture. His name is Lightning McQueen. As some of you know, in the first Cars movie, McQueen was lightning fast, a rookie sensation on the Piston Cup racing circuit. And because he was so fast and got so much praise and attention for being fast, he thought he didn't need anybody. And that distorted view of reality would prove costly. While he was on the verge of becoming the first rookie to win the Piston Cup, McQueen's pride led him to ignore the pleas of his pit crew uh, and so he doesn't stop to get his tires changed during his last pit stop as the race goes on he's thinking this is a great idea look at this huge lead but then when he gets the final lap pop a tire blows and metal rims start scraping on racetrack asphalt sparks are flying everywhere as mcqueen is fishtailing on the track and then pop another tire pops And now McQueen is left hopping on rims and tires, limping down the track, trying to make it to the finish as two other cars catch him. Even after the race, he still doesn't think that he needs anyone and is treating others poorly. On the way to the tiebreaker race in California, being determined to get there before the other drivers for his his own promotion and, and gain, McQueen... He's only thinking of himself. And so Mac, the semi-truck that hauls him, who is pleading for him to pull over so they can sleep, gets ignored and makes him drive through the night. McQueen then overestimates his own ability to stay awake, which leaves Mac in a vulnerable situation and ultimately leads McQueen to be trapped in radiator springs. See, just like Lightning McQueen, being really good at something can stoke our pride, and our pride can make us blind to our own needs. Thank you for that. Maybe the need is not for tires, but maybe the need is the input of others, the help of others, the correction of others, an awareness of your own limits. And maybe today you realize that, like Lightning McQueen, you are really good at something. Maybe it's not racing, maybe it's school, or what you do at your job, or athletics. Maybe you have really good theology, Or maybe you have strong leadership skills, or great musical talent, or strong speaking gifts, or or a way with people. And maybe those are the strengths that make you blind to other weaknesses and needs. You think you're doing fine, you're leading the pack while ignoring the concerns of others. And yet when something blows up, it's not going to be your tires. It's going to be your integrity your friendship, your career, your family, your health, or even your life. And the next thing you know it, sparks are flying, and you're the one who's limping along, hoping that you can still make it to the finish line. And yet pride can also make us ignore the needs of, of others, being so focused on the things that we're looking to to validate us, to tell us that we are somebody. Can cause us to invalidate the needs of others. Maybe there are people in your own life, like Mac, or like McQueen's pit crew, that are hurt because they weren't treated as being someone valuable to you. Both our strengths and our weaknesses uh, can become a breeding ground for pride, tempting us uh, to tempting us to trust in something that we make, something we do, something we look to some idol to save us from our fears our hurts, our insecurities. Now, someone's pride may not be as obvious as Lightning McQueen's, uh, or as Gaston's, or or as Rupert's, or even as my own. But it still follows the same pattern and comes with the same pitfalls. Maybe leaving us constantly comparing ourselves with others, or maybe expressing itself as a relentless perfectionism that never lets you rest. Uh, Maybe uh, leaving us always asking how our last conversation made us look to this person or to that person. Maybe showing itself in our endless opinions and unsolicited advice. Maybe paired with a resistance to hear anyone else who might challenge or teach or help us. Or maybe a slow simmering disdain for those whose weaknesses might be the opposite of our own. And maybe the weariness that you're already feeling is the evidence that you've already taken that bait, ensnared through empty promises that you trusted would be otherwise. Empty because, as we see in this passage, pride ultimately fails. Verse 13 declares that, that they will be just one more nation exhausting themselves for nothing. And what, declaring in verse 16 that they will be filled with the shame instead of glory. Disgrace will cover up your glory. You see, in God's judgment of this proud nation, we hear five woes uh, from the lips of her former victims, five condemnations of her evil, and how it will all be turned back on her instead. To summarize the woes, verse 6, the plunderers will be plundered. Verse 9, those who built a legacy with violence now suffer violence. Verse 12, they try to build a dynasty with blood, but it comes to nothing. While the knowledge of the God they're trying to defeat will cover the earth. Verse 15, those who expose others become exposed themselves. And verse 19, their strength was their God. But they'll soon discover that their strength is nothing compared to that of the real God. See, like a fishhook, pride promises life only to then take it away. So if we've already taken the bait, already fell into the the snare, or maybe we see that we're prone to do the same, where do we find hope? If we've already taken the bait, already found ourselves in that snare, how do we find freedom? We actually find the answer right there in verse 4, speaking to a people who, who have heard promises of life from fleeing to Egypt or by believing the false prophets that just tell them what to hear, instead the word they hear from god is the righteous will live by faith see when we see that the other things that we trust in the things that we try to make ourselves the things that we try to do ourselves or give ourselves to either have failed us or eventually will fail us leaving us frustrated or exhausted or both leaving us uh, with hurting people in our wake when we see that it's just a trap god invites us to instead trust in him to live by faith in Him, because that is where life can be found. As Travis Scott puts in his excellent book, Faithful Doubt, the contrast in Habakkuk 2.4 shows us that the true opposite of faith isn't doubt, it's pride. See, while pride offers a distorted view of reality that makes you presume too much, distorts your desires, and leaves hurting people in your wake, while also leaving you restless and exhausted, The faith described here has the opposite effect. See, as we we see how it does so and how this faith becomes our freedom, by looking at how this verse is later quoted in the New Testament, specifically by the Apostle Paul. In Galatians uh, 3.11, we read, Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. You see, those that Paul was writing to were deceived, having been ensnared by religious and the reason why is that they had fallen into a belief about god's law that says hey just do this well enough and you'll live that's where your life is found you can do it you just have to do it all and yet nobody can they can't i can't you can't that's why it says right before verse 11 that if you're trusting in your ability to perform well enough to secure god's favor you're doomed those who are under the illusion, though, that they could, were proud because of it. And that pride led them to try to control other people and treat them as means to secure their own security or their own glory. In see, in trying to make these non-Jewish believers live like they were Jewish believers, Paul says they subject people to bondage, contrary to what he describes as the freedom that we have in Christ. You see, and to, to undo this bondage and this, religious, this mess that religious pride brought, Paul points them back to Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous will live by faith. Paul writes earlier in, in Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, before Paul was a follower of Jesus, his own religious pride led him to hurt others, persecuting Christians, putting them in literal bondage as he would take them away as captives. A wake of hurting people followed wherever he went. People feared him for good reason. But that man, Paul says, no longer lives. He is crucified with Christ, his new life is no longer lived trusting in his own righteousness, his obedience to God's law, his own performance, his persecuting zeal, but instead lived by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him, trusting in our own performance to make us right with God, to be justified before him. That's the trap. You see, what it promises, it cannot deliver. You'll never be good enough you will just exhaust yourself while you're trying to be. It never works because our own unrighteousness, our own sin, our own cosmic treason against God just runs that deep. And Paul is telling his readers, your righteousness doesn't come from your religious performance so that you could take pride in it, but from your faith in another's performance, from your trust in Him. As Pastor Ray Cortez put it, our performance doesn't give us security. Jesus' performance does. Every other attempt to find that declaration that you are somebody, that you are enough, that you are worthy will backfire on you. Whether you get it, like Madonna apparently did, or whether you, you fall, far sh- fall far short, either way it backfires. And the only when you see that will you shift your trust to Jesus. And yet when you do, The declaration that comes from God is beyond anything that you could ever hope or strive for. As Paul writes in Romans 1, verse 17, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Instead of a a righteousness uh, that we Feel that we have to create, something that we will just make ourselves, Paul talks about a righteousness from God. This is the exact same verse that Martin Luther had to wrestle with, a wrestling that ultimately led to his conversion and helped spur the Reformation, eventually seeing that the righteousness of God that is at the very center of, of this good news Jesus declared, this gospel, was a righteousness from God, a standing that God grants people by faith In Jesus Christ, that's the righteousness that believers live by. One that comes to them from the outside, from God, in the gospel. A righteousness that takes our focus off of ourselves, our lives, what we do, how we compare, and puts it on Jesus and what he has done. And that gospel is where we find the solution to the problem of pride as Lewis Smedes describes it. Pride in the spiritual sense is refusal to let God be God. It's to grab God's status for oneself. It's turning down God's invitation to join the dance of life as a creature in his world and wishing instead to be the creator, independent, reliant on one's own resources. And that is the great delusion. The way that God solved the problem of pride The problem of sinful humans taking the place of a holy god was that the holy god jesus christ god the son would take the place of sinful humans on the cross as travis scott writes later in his book on the cross jesus is plundered for us plunderers violence comes upon him as he receives the violence due to us he comes to nothing because of our iniquity He receives the cup of wrath that we should have swallowed. He's stripped naked on the cross and exposed to the ridicule, scorn, and shame that was and is due to us. Friends, in the face of pride's distorted view of reality that's prone to presume too much, this gospel that we receive by faith humbles us, bringing us down to earth by showing us our sin and our limitations reminding us that those that we meet along the way are simply fellow creatures like us, not a means to our own end. In the face of the distorted desires that pride produces, the gratitude for God's grace, his unmerited favor that we receive by faith, renews our desires. The one who loved us and gave himself for us begins to make makes us be the people that make more and more of his love. And find ourselves asking, How do I show that love to to others? In the midst of our restlessness, in the midst of our exhaustion, running on our own performance treadmills, this faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross enables us to rest on the righteousness of Christ credited to our accounts, freeing us from spiritual exhaustion. And finally, when we're no longer scrambling to feed this insatiable longing, we no longer need to cannibalize others along the way. The hurting people that we would otherwise leave in our wake are no longer seen as means to our own ends because our the greatest end, our deepest need has already been met in Christ. All the while freeing us to love and to receive love. You see, while pride puts oneself above God and others, faith puts itself below God, and often as a result, willingly below others. Brian Chapel uh, tells this story about what happened in his hometown. Two brothers were playing on the sandbanks by the river. One ran after another up a large mound of sand. Unfortunately, the mound was not solid, and their weight caused them to sink in quickly. When the boys did not return home for dinner, the family and neighbors organized a search they found that the younger brother was unconscious, with his head and shoulders sticking out above the sand. When they cleared the sand to his waist, he awakened. The searchers asked, Where's your brother? The child replied, I'm standing on his shoulders. With the sacrifice of his own life, that older brother lifted the younger to safety. The tangible and sacrificial love of the older brother literally served as a foundation for the younger brother's life. And friends, that is what Jesus did for you. And Hebrews 2 describes Jesus Christ's willingness to be like that older brother, like this. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's the cross. Both the one who makes men holy, Jesus Christ, and those who are made holy, Christians, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. See, though Jesus came from above, he came to serve us just like that other brother from below, offering his life so that he might become the foundation of our life, offering his righteousness so that we don't need to exhaust ourselves trying to prove that we're good enough or that we're somebody. Just like that unstable sand, the more that we exhaust ourselves trying to scramble to the top of it, the deeper we sink. That's the trap that ensnares. That is until we rest secure on Jesus to lift us up, to be the foundation of our Lives. And to become that for us, Jesus went to that cross to show us both the depth of our need and the depth of his love. You see, both pride and faith reveal what, or rather who, we most trust. And what Jesus shows us by his act of love on that cross is that he alone is worthy of that trust. Let me pray for us.